Hello, welcome to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast with National Poach Day recently passing in the UK. We're making this poetry month on the Rippling Pages. That means we've got not one, but two episodes this month focusing on some recently released poetry. And what a way to start. We're joined by Baron Wormser, a previous Guggenheim and National Endowment for the Arts fellow. Baron is a truly benevolent and guiding force in English-speaking poetry. There are two books of Barons that we're here discussing. One is an account of a life lived off the grid, and the other is his 11th collection of poetry. In Barron's work, there's always a sense of finding the transcendence, and even in life's simple tasks, on language's more simple usage, there is a sense that it's always worth it and that it's always interesting. Elsewhere, Barron was once a poet laureate of Maine. Barron, thank you very much for joining me on the Rippling Pages. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. Just tell us, though, a bit more about you, a bit more about your life, and also you as a poet. Uh, the Road Washes Out in Spring is an account of uh, the years that uh, my wife and I uh, and our two two kids uh, lived off the grid uh, in the woods, uh, literally in Maine. Uh, so that means we lived a uh, half hour, a half mile from our neighbor's and we lived uh, very simply. Very simply means we had uh, no electric company power. So that means we had all wood heat. We uh, cooked on a wood stove and also a little uh, propane stove. We had kerosene lights uh, and we had an outhouse. So it was a very simple, basic living. We lived like that for over 23 years. That The book is also an account of uh, how, how I became a, a poet. Um, I, I'd been reading poetry since I was an adolescent, but, uh, but I started writing poetry seriously uh, when I, uh, a couple years after I moved, moved to the woods, uh, around when I was uh, 30. And uh, it, it had a lot to do with having moved to the woods, um, particularly, I think, because of the, the nature of, of how we live, which was uh, there was a lot of solitude and quiet silence. And um, I believe poetry exists in, in relation to, to silence. The, uh, the silence, the life there um, got me going writing poetry, and I've kept writing poetry since then. So... Since then, obviously, then you've had this, you know, fantastic career as a poet, awards and, and fellowships. Is it harder than, say, or do you think it's harder than, say, somewhere else to find that balance in America as a poet? Is it was there a kind of a need to to move to the to the land, find the back to the land movement to sort of cultivate that practice? Well, you know, certainly my path was a different path at the, you know, in many ways at the time, because poetry is, has come to be closely associated with academia. You know, for many, uh, they, this degree occurred, the Master of Fine Arts in Writing. And, and so for many, uh, that was their, that was sort of their door uh, into, into poetry. Um, that wasn't my door. Uh, my door was, was on my own. Uh, in that sense, I'm an autodidact in terms of my, uh, just by reading, basically. 
a lot of a lot of poetry. I pretty much read poetry every day of my life since I was 15. And so it evolved, I think, naturally, so to speak, in terms of my, my coming to write poetry. Uh, and as I say, it probably happened around mm, three or four years after, you know, we moved to the woods, I started writing. It's a beautiful book in, you know, there are there's lots of moments where you really, you know, sort of see or as if sort of beauty of the world reveals itself. The world. There's also moments of humor. It's quite, it's quite funny in times. There's moments of sadness. And it's kind of this life lived uh, in in the rural, you know, in rural Maine. And as, I know you just sort of mentioned um, how poetry has become, or it's moved into the sort of the academy. But there were there were parts of this book where I felt like there were times where you were either I don't want to say commenting on craft or practice. But there seemed to be a, a real pleasure in some of the tasks that you had to undertake out there that were not poetry or not writing. It's a book about, or it seems like it's a book about the love of those simple tasks that we sort of have to do every day. Yeah, I, th- I think um, you are right. There is a, there's a powerful connection uh, between poetry and, and how we live. The way we lived... Uh, we, we had to pay a, a lot of attention uh, to simple tasks uh, every day, like filling the, filling the lamps, for instance, and cutting the wicks and lighting the lamps. And then, of course, starting fires, which was sort of endless because it's cold in the winter in Maine. So I'm then tending fires, um, but also cooking. I mean, pretty much we cook from scratch every day. Uh, you know, for many years we didn't have a refrigerator, so uh, so so we we made our food every day. Uh, there was there was a little town. You couldn't go to a restaurant or anything like that. There wasn't a restaurant. So uh, so po- and a poem, of course, is something that you hope is carefully made. Uh, for me, um, the two the two go together basically in terms of attending to something, um, being attentive, uh, carefully making something. Uh, and, you know, a poem can obviously take quite a time to make. So you, you put it down, you pick it up, you put it down, you pick it up. Um, and, and so it, there's a kind of rhythm to it, the way there's a rhythm to a lot of the work that we did. Certainly all the woodcutting I did was was literally rhythmic. Um, and it puts your it puts your head in a different place because you're you're just concentrating very much on on that piece of wood that's uh that's in front of you it seemed like it was a choice to sort of write quite specifically about the jo- the tasks the the jobs that you had to undertake and there's a the very early on there's a you write about the simplicity of our lives how physical action a produced result b uh it pleased us more than it tired us um I don't do you feel the same about writing poetry or reading poetry? <laughs> Great question. Poetry is uh is a very complex art. Uh, that's sort of what I've learned by the age of 75. And uh so it's not it's not um it's not simple. Uh however, the engagement with language 
has a simple quality in the sense that poetry is still always word by word. So uh, a poem is a series of careful word choices, basically. And you, you, can't, you can't get ahead of yourself when you write a poem because you're still writing it down one word at a time. Um, I write pro. I can write prose on the computer. I cannot write poetry on a machine. I can't write it on a computer. I have to do it by hand, on a on a on a piece of paper, a legal pad, um, because it's so organic. I suppose is is the word um, for me. Uh, so. So it's not like you could talk about a good poem for a long time because it's complex. There's so much going on in terms of sound, rhythm, connotation, denotation, form, line. There's a great deal going on simultaneously. Uh, and and it, it takes time to, to delve into it. I mean, you, you mentioned a poet like Frost and you could talk a long time about a, a good Frost poem. Uh, but uh, uh, the sort of, as I said, word by word of it, that's simple. You led this very rural lifestyle. You know, you found solitude, you found silence. But the poem goes out into the world. What I'm trying to write about, because, you know, when you live the way we live, the automatic assumption people make is that you are, quote, a nature poet. I love trees, but I'm not a nature poet. Uh, I'm someone who's basically been writing about what used to be called the human comedy, which is to say uh, people and what they do in this world. And uh, that's what I've been writing about. So so it's pretty far ranging. I mean, you read the History of Hotel in terms of the different scenarios that I approach in that book. Uh, I'm all over the place, basically, in terms of what I've what I've written about. That's from reading, and that's from just imagining, basically, and whatever other sources float into my head through uh, through news, through movies, through whatever comes in there, through our lives in the woods. Uh, so, so I, I think, you know, as I said, it, it's it's the human comedy, which for me is is actually tragic comedy. That's pretty much how I look at life in terms of. Um, the, uh, how to say, built-in humor and built-in sadness that goes with uh, with being a mortal creature. King Lear gets a couple of references in the History Hotel. Uh, can you tell me, Baron, about the influence of Lear and Shakespeare on your work? It's It's been a powerful, a powerful influence on me. I think uh, his, obviously, his sense of language, his sense of drama, his sense of tragedy, uh, the range of his work, the richness of his work. Uh, there's just nothing like it um, in in English. And then there's, the, the as you said, Liam, there's specific plays. Uh, certainly uh, Lear has been a play I've, I've read and reread and read again. And to the point where I wrote a novel called uh, Tom of Vietnam, which is a a play on Tom of Tom of Bedlam and King Lear, about a soldier named Tom who has served in, in the war in Vietnam, and him uh, in the 1980s in the United States trying to still cope with the experience of war, what he's seen, what he's been through. And the book that means the most to him 
is is King Lear and and the um, the honesty uh, in that play uh, in terms of uh, our condition as human beings and how how uh, Lear is is literally stripped bare uh, in in the play and uh, as I talked earlier about tragedy and the tragedy of of misapprehension misunderstanding. Um, obviously, the enormous one at the beginning of the play, in which Lear doesn't understand Cordelia and all all the harm uh, that that results from that, um, and yet also obviously the streak of very dark humor in the play, um, as represented by the fool, and then the character of 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 Tom Tom of Bedlam. Yeah, and you describe yourself as. Well, in in brief, in History Hotel, you describe yourself as reprising Leah's uh, journey. What does that mean? Leah, because you're right. And you cite him, right? Um, From witless to wit and back. So, you know, there's that that unknowing. um, And then there's a kind of knowing we feel that's wit. Um, and there is a lot of literal wit um, in the play. And then witless, because we, at the end, we don't know. <laughs> it's all a mystery. And we're left with, you know, that mystery in this world. And so uh, we're left with our with our unknowing. So I, th- I think that's part of whatever you want to call it, the journey that... Um, that that Lear Lear goes through, and and it's it's I mean the end is shocking, you know we'll never get over the shock right, of when Lear comes in bearing Cordelia's body right. There's just that's beyond words really. Mm-hmm. When did uh, when did you first interact with it? Through my mom because she was an English teacher. <laughs> Um, and uh, so I was from her, and then you know when I was, you know whatever thirteen, fourteen, we started to read plays like Julius Caesar, Midsummer Night's Dream, um, and then in high school starting to read you know the more whatever challenging plays, and then a year of Shakespeare at college, and it's by that it stuck. <laughs> That's um, so, but it's such a nice or it seems a nicer organic way to come to it. I think the issue is is especially over here is that we're introduced to it in school and there's a syllabus and we have you know we've got to you know memorize or critique it in this way or that way. It's if it seems like such a more organic way to interact with it. And obviously that stayed with you, you know, throughout your life and poetry. Yes, it, it's very much been been part of my life. I um, I'm always pulling down a play and um, and reading it again. Yes, there are sort of enduring themes, but also impermanent and more transient themes. I guess uh, that seem to be at odds with one another in 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 your poems, at least. Yeah, well, I think I think the experience of modernity, for better or worse, is a heterogeneous experience. It are it should be. Some people try to make it not. So obviously, a lot comes at us. A lot of is available to us. We take a lot in. And so the challenge certainly is: well, what the hell does all this mean? Um, and so the poem, each poem, is sort of a, a, a whatever an attempt 
to wrestle with various situations, historical, contemporary, whatever, where different things are occurring essentially um, at the same time, more or less, and are, are maybe just attesting to the drama of it, right? Because it all comes back to drama in terms of our being here in this world. Uh, it's not that any of us have conclusive understanding. We don't. Uh, but we certainly experience drama day in, day out uh, in terms of the world that, that we live in. Yeah, the, the what comes to my mind uh, as you as you said, that is that image of of the candle that opens opens history hotel. I think that it just seems to really resonate with a sense of briefness, the kind of you know the flux of life, the kind of very short passage that we have on Earth. And it, it, it I don't know. It, I mean, it, I mean, there's obviously the very famous Shakespeare line, you know, out out brief candle from. You're right. Obviously, I mean, if you ask me what poetry is about, one thing it's about is transience. Um, we're passing through. And inevitably, then for us as human beings, it's about loss. Um, and it's about one thing becoming another thing, like that candle. And then that candle coming back and, you know, being a candle again, being a reform. So obviously, then it also brings up issues of light and dark, which obviously is part of the rhythm of our days uh, on Earth and, and something we're deeply attuned to as um, as human beings. Yeah, this is why this is what I really enjoyed about the History Hotel. Um, a real sense of transience of it's an enduring theme, isn't it? It's something that goes beyond any kind of movement or, or categorization of a form or style or whatever. These are questions that have been asked, you know, since yeah, the dawn of time, haven't they? Yeah, it's it's eternal as far as we're concerned. Um there's no <laughs> there's no final poem. <laughs> you know, we we all keep doing it. We all read it. We all add to it, and uh, it's. I think it's it's honest. It can be honest that way in terms of admitting, um, you know, what you bring up uh, about uh, about about our transience. Um, that it's uh, as that word that first that first poem. Brief. It's not all that long um, that we're here. Certainly and. Even at my age, uh, it doesn't feel that long. And um, as I write at the beginning of The Road Washes Out in Spring, um, my mom died when she was 48. Um, so that didn't seem very long. So, yeah. Yeah. If you're in Bradford on the 4th of November, why not join me and Tom Branford as we launch his new collection, Boar. Published by Broken Sleep Books, I'm going to be asking Tom some questions and there'll be readings by poets Jasmine Gray and Jerry Francis. For fans of poetry or the Ripper Pays, it's sure to be a fun night. Find a link to the tickets in today's show notes. Hope to see you there. Is there, I mean, some some might sort of say there's a particular idea about the world here. There's a particular sort of faith. Um, and there are images of faith or symbolism within your poems, but there's not a grand overarching, there's, you know, there's no church, so to speak, what I'm always looking for, um, I think the world is speaking to us all the time. Uh, I think it's all speaking to us. And I think what popes try to do is listen and, and put that down, basically. So I suppose in that sense, it's it makes me what some people call spiritual in terms of I believe that. Uh, but I believe everything is speaking. <laughs> 
So it's inanimate things are speaking, animate things are speaking, it's all speaking to us. It's just that we're limited and we, we don't take that much in because we're distracted and busy and whatever's going on in our heads. Um, and then it's the task of the poem to sort of create a, the, a, res, a resonance from, from that expressiveness of, of every detail. Because um, essentially what you're get, trying to get down on, on the page is the being of whatever it is that, that you're writing about. So if there's a deer or a pencil or a macaroni, you're trying to get that being to be expressive so that the reader listener feels it. So it's not just a so-called fact or a detail that it has expressive life to it. Is it a language then that the, you know, that you're trying to discern or listen to in terms of the pencil or the deer for argument's sake? What is it that you're trying to translate into the poem? What I'm trying to translate is that quality of being um, that then gets dramatized in the poem. How does that guide your poetry then for someone you know for another poet that doesn't isn't a spiritual poet are there other poets that that, you know what's the language of that poetry if that makes sense well obviously i i think it's it's not um it's not necessarily anything symbolic it's more uh, again to go back to what i what i just said Uh, i think one thing that poetry tries to uh, give us is what i call the thrill of being just being here, basically. Uh, each of us feels that thrill through our senses, uh, moment by moment. Poetry is trying to deliver that, so to speak, um, via language. Uh, to me, there's something of spirit in that thrill. I mean, there's just that basic basic truth that none of this has to be here. The world that we're in and who we are, none of it has to be here. To use a word I like a lot, a haunt, a haunting quality. Um, I'm, it's easy for me to say I've written because I'm haunted um, by the world that I'm in, the world around me, history, the past, people, creatures at all. As I said, none of it has to be here. So I find that haunting. Um, and the expressiveness of it is haunting to me. Does that relate to a certain idea of of time and chronology? There's a there's a book I like a great deal um, by a um, a historian, a philosopher named Charles Taylor, who um, Canadian, and the book's called A Secular Age. And the book is about he basically looks at human beings in the year 1500 and the year 2000 and asks himself the question, what's the difference? Good question. And the difference, as he puts it, is 1500. And this relates to what you're talking about, Liam. In 1500, basically, the self that people carry around is what he calls porous. That means that that self is open to the spirit world. So it's open to ghosts, goblins, um, elves. Uh, all the things that come out on a midsummer's night, uh, right in England, um, <laughs> all those uh, all those uh, creatures, uh, the self is open to, uh, and we know at the beginning of Hamlet who appears a ghost. In the year two thousand, 
We don't exactly have that self anymore. We have what he calls a buffered self. And that's because we live in a mediated world. Look at what we're doing here. <laughs> Look at all the technology between you and me, okay? You walk into a room, you turn a light on. That's a buffered buffered world. You get in a car, it's a buffered world. So, so the self is, is sort of whatever you want to call it, more remote, more protected, whatever you want to call it. That's different. Poetry, however, is sort of still got one foot back there in 1500 in terms of the haunted quality um, that sort of goes with poetry uh, in terms of not being buffered. And I wondered if anything about being a poet in America or in the West in particular that makes that buffered experience, to use the expression, which is really nice, way of putting it and it really brings to the yeah is there a particularly buffering experience in the american way of life that either makes this life more difficult or perhaps more interesting a dialectic i think the thing is here uh obviously as as is painfully present i suppose to everybody who looks at this country at this point in time it's very much an experiment um it's a it's a made-up place um, you know, it, it's a creation. I mean, it was created. The act of independence was, well, now we're going to create this country. I can't, you know, there's no definitive answer, God knows, to this. But I think I think there's sort of an inherent openness um, to being a poet here. And that's why the, the, two, the two huge poets for us, for Americans, or at least for me as an American from the 19th century, are Whitman and Dickinson. Um, and and the degree to which they're making it up is just remarkable, remarkable, honestly, uh, in terms of how different they are from what's going on around them. You know, created, made up, and self-creating quality too, right? I mean, Whitman is making himself up on the page, and Dickinson is making herself up on the page. Well, that's a really different you know, it's not what Matthew Arnold is doing in the middle of the 19th century in Britain. It's not what Tennyson is doing. They're good poets, but that's not what they're doing. Say so it made me think a bit more of um, the sense of creation of the self, the sense of the I, and the and the and especially the sort of spiritualism of, or what appears to be spiritualism of Emerson's. And is it fair to say that there's a lot of images of gambling or? chance in your poems well um i had a grandfather who liked to play cards so uh so certainly uh, i was familiar with um with uh, the chance that went with uh with a deck of cards i think uh i do have a sense of uh of fate that way you know, I, I, uh, how to say Greek tragedy makes a lot of sense to me, frankly. Um, we are in control. Uh, things happen to us. And uh, that's part of part of being on Earth. And, uh, and, and so I think one thing that poetry has done for thousands of years is sort of try to face up to that, um, experience that, you know, in terms of what we go through. That's so whether we call it all the words we call it coincidence or however our minds work. Uh, 
that's part. And, and if you write a lot of poems, you become aware of how chancy the whole thing is. Um, you know, something comes in your head, and then you forget it in five minutes. Whoops, there goes the poem, you know? Uh, it's very... Okay, that's, usually, that's my general approach to uh, where <laughs> I put my, put my keys in my wallet, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is there... Um, you know, you've spoke a lot about tragedy and fate. Uh-huh. Is... Um, it seems very much at odds with the sort of a lighter subject such as a game of cards, a game of chance idea. You know, tragedy is it's a technical term, it's a literary term, but it's also a term that's used often in, you know, it's a it's a politicized term. What I guess what for you, you know, what is what is this tragedy? What comes with well, I think the main tragedy is we don't know what we're doing here and we wind up making a lot of trouble because of that, you know, with one another. Um, and and so there's just a sort of almost inherent tragedy to uh, to life on Earth that way for us. Um, I mean, I mean, some poets uh, define it, um, you know, as just just our mortality. Um, I don't define it that way. I think you know we're just part of you know everything dies. That's a fact, as Bruce Springsteen once put it, and um, you know that's that's part of being here. I don't see that as, you know, as tragic per se. I see that just as that's part of the cycle of, you know, being here on earth. But certainly to me, what we do to one another, um, certainly um, for me, you know, has a has a tragic dimension. Yeah. yeah and um, I mean, I'm thinking back to, you know, the opening, the preface of the new edition of The Road Washes Out uh, in spring. And you, I don't want to spoil this for anyone, actually, so I hope. I mean, it's in, it's only in the first few pages, but I think readers should pick uh, this up. And you and you and you start the preface with speaking about the death of your mother, and you finish, you know, ultimately by talking about what might or what might happen when you know people die, when we do die, and the sense of what the feelings that come with it. The you call it the intimations that you've had. It's very, you know, it's it's very very beautiful idea. Yeah, thank you. I think this is embodied in a way in a recurring image that comes through in your book the idea of you know baseball or not the idea of it but what baseball is a game but it's a game where people are very um it's a very superstitious game and it's about look it's about streaks and uh you do baseball is it's in your poems quite a lot i grew up with baseball um the uh professional team came to baltimore in 1954 i was six years old uh, my grandfather lived near the stadium, uh, so my father took took me to games uh, at the stadium. We visited my grandfather, then went to a game. Um, I almost think I learned to read because I wanted to read the box scores of the of the statistics. Allegiances one forms as a child um, with a certain team have a way of staying with with a person through uh, through life. It's my hometown. They're my hometown team. Um, but you're right. Obviously, in sport, there is a ball. Um, the ball is struck. Where is the ball going to go? Is the ball going to be caught? Is the ball not going to be caught? <laughs> and and uh, so so there's this element of, of, of chance that that I think delights us as, uh, as human beings because we get to see in a relatively, you know, limited, modest way, all kinds of issues about fate and chance acted out. Also, obviously, drama in terms of there's the pitcher, there's the batter. There's an inherent drama between those two. 
One's trying to hit the ball, the other's trying to get the other guy out. What is going to happen? Something always happens. That's very satisfying that something always happens to us also, given that in many things, um, they're long-standing dramas, uh, alas. I, I love your poem, uh, in, in Baseball. Yeah, well, I as we as when we're speaking, Baron, uh, the the Orioles are two games down. So let's let's fingers crossed for me that they will. Um, let's see if they can turn it around. Eh? <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, you are a Baltimore. Is it Bal? Would you call them Baltimoreans? Is that how we'd? Uh, Baltimoreans, also familiarly known as Baltimoreans. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll stick to Baltimoreans, shall we? Uh, but yeah, you're. Particularly if, if you really wanted to get a grasp of Baron's work in on you know Baltimore and, and Baron, then uh, teaches that piece uh, in particular very heavily set uh, in Baltimore and a really interesting time and era in in not just in Baltimore but in America. So, but um, otherwise, Baron, it's been uh, a pleasure to have you on the Rippling Pages. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, the History Hotel and the Road Washes Out in Spring are both out now. But for now, Baron. Thank you very much. A delight that you've uh, been to my hometown too is is really uh, something kind of special to me. So, so yeah, it's just a, a big thanks to you, Liam. Thanks once again to Baron for joining me on today's episode, and of course, my biggest thanks to you for listening as well. Join me next time, and I'm going to be joined by Charlotte Eichhorn.